It's Thursday, September 30th. It's the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Thanks for tuning in to Real Talk. This episode is presented by our friends at Bitcoin Well, our title sponsors. They're Canada's first ever publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company. If you have any questions about Bitcoin, Ethereum, why you might need Bitcoin ATMs, cryptocurrency, the whole nine yards, they get it. And they've got a team of real live humans. Nothing wrong with search engines, but sometimes you got to just bounce questions off somebody. You'll find them. You can find them in person. Headquartered in Edmonton, of course, they've got ATMs across the country or online by following the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We thank you for tuning in today. We know that today's going to be a little bit different than other Thursdays for you. Many of you are... Uh, going to be observing this day as a stat because of uh, your employer and the position that they've taken. Some of you are going to be working today because the, the jurisdiction where you live in Canada is is not recognizing this stat. This is the first time that Canadians have officially on September 30th observed the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I've, I've just tweeted from my account at Ryan Jesperson that we're very proud uh, to be hosting, to be presenting a special episode today of Real Talk. We're going to be speaking with indigenous community leaders uh, in healthcare, in the arts, in technology, and I believe uh, all of us, regardless of where we're coming from, regardless of the depth or perhaps the shallow nature of our knowledge on some of these uh, talking points, these conversations, these issues, uh, and, and some of these gains maybe that people uh, living in Canada have been making over the past number of years over the, over the past number of months you'll be sharing these with us I hope and I know with confidence that we're all going to learn something today to give us something to think about we've been receiving some messages from some of you I, I saw a, a tweet yesterday from a former colleague of mine uh, a news anchor by the name of Stacy Bratzel who said you know my daughter's going to be home from school on Thursday, today, and she said, I don't want her just sitting around streaming Netflix, and, I, and I'm wondering what she can do or what she can watch or perhaps what we should pursue to ensure that, that this day is meaningful in our household. Of course, I couldn't help myself. I invited Stacy and, and her daughter to tune in to Real Talk today, but that's the purpose of today's broadcast. We want you to have an opportunity to deepen your understanding as I deepen mine, as our team deepens ours into what this day truly should mean with regards to not just an opportunity for reflection, but also for each of us to understand where the challenge lies. What's our assignment, so to speak, as Canadians or as Indigenous people living in Canada? I invite you to reply to my tweet. Some of you already have letting us know how you will infuse meaning into today. Tanara says, I'm reading Indian in the Cabinet by Jody Wilson-Raybould, and I'm going to be talking to my aunt, uh, who is Métis, about her experiences. Robert says, I'm very proud that our company's ownership and management team chose to be closed today in recognition of this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Robert says, I will be continuing my learning uh, by uh, reading this amazing book, From the Ashes, by Jesse Thistle. Hi, hi, that from Robert. Kristen says that she'll be streaming CBC Gem today, and I'm sure that she means after Real Talk Raps. 
at 1030 Mountain Time, 1230 Eastern. But Kristen, we appreciate you chiming in on this. Prairie Girl says, I'm going to wear my orange shirt. I'm going to listen to Real Talk. I'm going to take part in the walk and the ceremony in the town of Devon today. Prairie Girl says, I look forward to the day when Rachel Notley is our premier in Alberta, recognizes this day as a stat holiday, so all can participate in this day of remembrance. Prairie Girl says, every child matters. And Nostra says, I'm going to be watching your fine show, reading, learning, listening, reflecting. How about this from CB? I appreciate this comment. I, I asked the question, what are you going to do to infuse meaning into the day today? And CB says nothing. I try to make it a part of my everyday living. And I appreciate that perspective as well. You know, you can send us an email anytime as well to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And, and many of you uh, use that as uh, the venue or the platform to send us photos like this one from Owen. This one came in uh, literally just about a half an hour ago. Uh, and, and, and pardon me, Jake, uh, Jake Owen says, I woke up. Look at this photo. For those of you tuning in on YouTube, if you're listening to the podcast, imagine a searing sunrise blasting and bouncing off the glass windows of a, a condo complex. Beautiful tree line in the background. Jake says, I saw this brilliant orange sunrise this morning, says this is totally unfiltered. Jake wishing us a good show. Jake, thank you for sharing that. Perhaps that's a sign. Perhaps that's a reminder. It's such an honor uh, to welcome our first guest to the program. It's been a number of years uh, since I've had an opportunity to speak with Dr. James McCaukis, a, a well-known physician. As a matter of fact, a bit of a legendary physician. Uh, when you, if you don't, if you're unfamiliar with his his area of practice and what his calling entails, uh, then you're in for a treat. Because this guy understands healthcare, I think, uh, to a depth uh, that many people do not. And now at a time where Canadians are grappling or wrestling with two incredibly important assignments. Number one, reconciliation. Or, or as we learned yesterday from an amazing guest, the, the founder of, of Orange Shirt Day. How, how amazing was it to hear from Phyllis Webstead? Reconciliation. That's one assignment. This pandemic, COVID-19, the other. And our leadoff guest has been hitting both head on, challenging people across this country to do what they can. Doctor, it's a real honor and a pleasure to welcome you to Real Talk, making your debut today. Thanks for being with us on the show. Good morning to you. It's nice to be here with you today. Uh, the last time you and I spoke was several years ago. We sat in a radio studio today and and, and we were talking about where, you, where your practice has taken you and your perspective on integrating traditional indigenous health practices with, with so-called modern or mainstream uh, medicine. This was before you and your amazing husband won the amazing race. It was before you were a household name in Canada, and I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to check in with you again. What does the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation mean to you personally? Yeah, I actually was just kind of having a, a bit of a reflection because my dad texted us in Cree, um, which is our Plains Cree language this morning, and he does that because um, it encourages us to practice uh, speaking Cree. And, um, you know, my dad is a survivor of the Blue Quills Residential School, as well as one of the first uh, students from our community in Saddle Lake to go to an integrated school 
in St. Paul, which was largely um, French and Cree folks. And I thought about the significance of him doing that today, where he was not able to speak and express himself in the way that we were gifted to do here in Turtle Island um, by speaking our own languages. And as he grew up and he became a father to my sister and I, he chose not to teach us that. And when I think about that, I think that's one of the um, most protective things that a parent can do for their child in that moment as he was raising us because he didn't want us to go through the same things that um, that he did um, when he was in residential schools, the abuses and the trauma. And um, so I'm so thankful that he has survived. And I told him that I said, you know, I, I responded in the language and I said, it must have been really difficult for you, Dad, <laughs> for the things that you went through. And we're so glad that you survived that place. So Janice and I could be here with you today. I think that everybody that's listening to this uh, and everybody that will listen to this can can hear the emotion in your voice. This is. I think quite obviously something that's uh, heavy for you to talk about. Has it always been this way? Um, you know, I think days like this bring that out again. Um, you know, both my sister and I are the first generation of people from our communities that did not go to residential school. And so um, days like this uh, can be very difficult <laughs> because it brings a lot of those things up. And it also puts into perspective um, the real lasting damaging effects that these places have had for Indigenous peoples, including myself and my family. Um, for many reasons, <laughs> if we think of all of the challenges that Indigenous communities and Indigenous nations and Indigenous peoples face, um, residential schools play a, a large part of that, but that's only one part of the history in the relationship of Indigenous peoples of this country that lasted for more than you know 160 years that was legislated through the you know Canadian Parliament to send Indigenous children to these places, and it's important to understand in our language. You know, the word for school um, is Kiskinwahamakeokamik, which really translates into a teaching lodge, a place where you go to learn um, in a lodge and in a ceremony, which is our own schools that we've had for our children for centuries we've educated our children in a very good and positive way that reinforced love and their values within our nation so that they can be good whole human beings that is our purpose that we're sent here to Askita Pamatsu and this earth life 
is to share our gifts with others and and make our communities and our families better in any way that we can. And so that was, you know, taken away with the implementation of these of this genocidal tool of oppression, uh, which is the residential schools, which was implemented by the first prime minister of this country. Um, and so it's important for Canadians to realize that the foundation of this country is rooted in that genocidal oppression. And that's very much contrasted with the narrative that we hear continuously that Canada is a country, you know, of, of freedom and the freedom of expression and a peacekeeping nation where we go to other parts of the world to uh, maintain and protect people's freedoms. And we have to be introspective and reflexive and start to think about that way when the truth of what has happened here in this country. And I think today is a day of reflection for many people to start to engage in that process of learning. And so we can understand that, you know, in the language, the word for school, you know, it changed with the course of residential schools to which means mahtu in Cree is to cry. So the place where you go to cry and learn building, essentially, which is a residential school. So you can, you, know, you can start to see that, you know, these weren't like elite private boarding schools like the Upper Canadian College or Ridley College, you know, many of these famous um, private schools throughout the country, which I think some folks feel that it was, you know, children were sent there, they were given a good education. Um, when, you know, my grandfather had to dig graves, you know, he remembers digging children's graves and um, was left in the hole and they forgot about him and they had to come, you know, back and find him later. And my other grandfather, Vernon, um, you know, he was about five or six when he left the St. Albert residential school, he ran away. He tried to run away many times um, back to Saddle Lake, which is about a two hour drive. And he was finally successful, you know, at six years old, um, walking by himself with a couple other little boys who took him, you know, and imagine yourself being six years old and um, having to walk the equivalent of a two hour drive. And, you know, he had his little slingshot with him so he could kill partridges along the way and uh, eat and feed himself like he was taught. But there's a lot of stories that each of us carry within our families. And, um, you know, some of us have been able to work through that, but it resurfaces every now and again. And, and today is, is, um, is, is a nice day that there's, you know, mass reflection on in terms of what this means, but it's also a very challenging day for, um, for a lot of folks. I couldn't possibly respect you more. And I'm so grateful for your voice on the show today, James. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for you, uh, 
if I can just say keeping it so real right now, um, I'm envisioning a small child digging graves. We're envisioning children. You know, yesterday when I spoke with Phyllis, she described the residential school as pee your pants terror. That's how she described it. And uh, these are the types of things every single you, you talk to us about your grandfathers or your father. And these are people with names, people with families. And I think that the numbers I've ruminated on this for the past number of months on the show, the numbers have provided some perspective or have provided a wake up call for many people uh, in Canada. But in my mind, one of the real tragedies of this is that it's not a long list of names. And I think that if we were looking at names, we would be forced to grapple with the fact that 215 or 751 or a list of more than 6,000, as to, to our knowledge at this point, more than 6,000 young indigenous children would slap us in the face more than it already has. And I appreciate you sharing this very personal account. It's wonderful to hear you speak uh, in, in plain Cree language. Uh, and, and if I can say you speak beautifully, and I'm curious to know how your knowledge there or your proficiency came about. You told us a few minutes ago that your dad was your father was hesitant to teach you the language and the culture. And I know that so many people now in Canada are looking at it with regards to an understanding of, of how we can impact reconciliation uh, in our own lives, in our own communities. A huge part of that conversation is language and culture. How did you get to a point where you can speak like you do and, and exchange words like you did with your father earlier this morning? <laughs> well, up since like I just speak a small amount of Cree and um, I, you know, probably when I was 19, um, I started to, uh, realize that my generation, and I guess I'm, I'm realizing that I'm middle-aged. So I just did a report. I just did a news report with uh, a reporter and they called me middle-aged and I was like, what? <laughs> I guess I am middle-aged. <laughs> how, how is uh, that? Is okay. How is that relevant to the story? <laughs> I know. I was like, well, a middle, you're introducing me as a middle-aged doctor. Like, yeah. Okay, I've never heard that before, but thank you. Um, and so uh, around that age, I, I started to realize how, you know, it's my generation and my sister's generation who are the first generation of non-fluent Cree speakers. So my dad's generation, who is, you know, he's turning 72 this year, um, and about, I would say, 55 and up on our reserve are the last generation of fluent Cree speakers. And then there's our generation, which puts a massive amount of stress and pressure on us to not only learn our language, but all of the other components that go along with maintaining nationhood, which is our, our songs, our ceremonies. Our ceremonies, you know, they're not just spiritual uh, practices, which, you know, a lot of non-Indigenous people think they are our systems of governance, of our medical system, our education system, our law and legal systems. And to maintain those, we have to maintain our language because everything 
is contained within that kind of like a code, I guess. And um, all of the, the symbols that reinforce our identity are found on the land in terms of land-based formations. Our site of creation is actually in, you know, in um, near Medicine Hat, we call it Iceni Watanao, which means first person hill. And if it's a, a land formation, if you look and you Google guardian of the badlands on um, Google, the image will pop up and you'll clearly see that there's a face there um, in uh, imprinted on the earth. And um, it's a good, you know, it's a large land mass. And um, our, our ancestors knew about this much before, you know, far before Google came to existence. And from there, we say that we're formed from that uh, red earth. And when you go to um, Hinton on the way to Jasper and you're going, yeah, that's the one. Um, that's, that's where we say our site of creation. And so clearly there's a face there and, you know, you can see a hat, which is probably um, why they call it medicine hat near there. When you're going to Jasper on the way from Hinton, there's um, a mountain there and it looks straight up. And that's the symbol of the first man. We say behind him is the first woman. Um, in English, they call it the Ross Miet mountain, I believe. Um, but there's these symbols of our identity that are all throughout this country of Turtle Island that are in the language. And it's really important. You know, it takes a lot of time and commitment and energy to learn a language because you essentially have to be immersed in it 24-7, which is very difficult for people to do in a Western capitalistic system where, you know, you have to make money to pay for your mortgage or your rent or your bills. And so a lot of time that I've spent is on my own going to learn with elders and spending weeks, you know, with them and camping out on their, um, their lawn and a tent to go learn medicines from them in the summer when I was taking a break from residency or medical school training. And a lot of our young people don't have that opportunity sometimes because they are disconnected with um, elders and knowledge holders. And so it takes an incredible amount of, of energy, but also, um, you know, self-motivation to be able to create those opportunities and also finances, right, to be able to take the time off to do that. So this is a huge potential loss, um, not only for this country, but the world, because these, only, these languages are only spoken here. And the true history of this land is embedded in those languages. And so we have to consider that for more than 160 years that the residential schools sought to eradicate our peoples, that you know, we've gotten to this point where there's very few fluent speakers of any Indigenous language, that it's going to take the same amount of effort or more to reju rejuvenate and revitalize those languages. And that's really the, the true conversation of uh, moving forward together, or, you know, some people use the word reconciliation, is those conversations and you know going back to that picture of the uh, Iceni Watano that you just showed 
if you look at it again, there's a circle in the middle with a line going down. That's an oil well. So just imagine our site of creation, which has been desecrated by having development in terms of oil and gas in this province. And that's really a symbol for the relation that has existed for Indigenous peoples and the Canadian state since our relationship began, which actually began in treaty, a peace and friendship treaty, to live here in peace and harmony with one another. And we don't even have access to that site anymore. So if that's what happens to, you know, imagine like one of the most sacred spots in the world. I don't know. We'll say, you know, a lot of people go to the Vatican or the Eiffel Tower or Dome on the Rock. I was just going to say the Dome on the Rock. That's what I was thinking about as you were talking about this, this, uh, you know, very significant land near Medicine Hat. And imagine if, if we just plopped an oil well there. Yeah. You know, what would the response be of the international community? That is, you know, be completely unacceptable. And probably there would be, you know, conflict between countries if that happened. And why do we allow that to happen here? Why do we allow this to continue to happen? And if we think of conflicts recently within this country with the Mi'kmaq fishers asserting their right to um, feed their families and their nations uh, with uh, fishing, right? You know, that is a treaty right that they've agreed to. Or if we think of the removal of those old beautiful trees at Ferry Creek in, you know, the province of British Columbia, which is unceded lands. And what that means is the government of Canada, uh, the Crown, ran out of money uh, by the time they got to BC. And so those nations did not make treaties to allow the settlement of their territories. And treaties are what allow the country, this, you know, Canadian state to exist. Without Indigenous peoples making treaties, there would be no Canadian state or government. And we made those with our four natural laws of honesty, strength and determination, kindness, and sharing, that we agree to be those things to one another. For as long as the grass grows, sun shines, water flows, and, and as long as there are Indigenous, you know, Native peoples, that's what we agreed to. And we never agreed to give up our land. You know, that's a, a, a common misconception that is in the written text of treaties, which was written by, you know, the Canadian state on behalf of the Crown. And we know this in our laws because our Indigenous women are the landowners. And they would never give up on behalf of all of the future generations yet to come, their children's inherent right and responsibility to be who they are and to be on their own lands. And so men make peace and friendship treaties, which they agreed to share to the depth of the European plow, which is six inches, that much is what our elders say. And so these, you know, I encourage people to think about these because this is the real conversation that needs to happen that is the disenfranchisement of our people from our land which continues to impoverish you know for us to live in poverty 
for us to live in poor health conditions, why we see the circumstances that exist within Indigenous peoples who now occupy less than 0.01% of the land on reserves in this country, when it was 100% occupied by Indigenous people. We're not supposed to live on reserves. So please, you know, educate yourself about the Skitsiasothamuin, these great promises that you are beneficiaries of. You know, if when you're driving from Calgary to Banff and you see the Lafarge plant taking down the mountain that is for cement, we never agreed to share the mountains. And if you think about that plant provides, you know, the resources for roads and sidewalks in cities and towns, and on reserves, we have very poor roads and infrastructure that the, you know, the, um, the resources from that do not go to Treaty 7. You know, Morley is right there, Sutina, all these nations are right there. And so those, again, are the conversations that are the real conversations. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to these sorts of things. And... Um, you know, I'd, I'd encourage people to to research that, to read about that. A really good book is um, by Tamara Starblanket, which is called Suffer the Little Children, Canada's Role in Genocide. Um, and she's a Cree scholar, a Cree legal scholar, who discusses and in great detail gives the evidence of the role that Canada has played through genocide through the instrumentation of residential schools, um, you know, that continued up until in the 1990s is when the last one closed. And these policies continue to exist today in many forms. Doctor, did I did I notice are you uh, holding or were you holding an eagle feather in your hand? Would, would you tell yes, would you tell us sure. would you tell us about the significance of that? Yeah, so the Gihil is one of our first clans. Um, that place that I showed you, when Indigenous people say that they're related to all of the living things in the world, the plant world, the animal world, the, um, the birds, this is one of the first clans that came um, so that we would be able to survive here in this country is uh, in this land here at Turtle Island, is the Eagle Clan. And so they're one of our original clans. And the role of the Eagle, you know, in our teachings, it sits to the east, Sagastinuk, where the sun rises. And there, there's a, uh, you know, a, a grandfather Eagle and a grandmother Eagle. And they teach us about the value of Sagituin, love, Sagituk to love one another. And they also teach us about having vision. Um, they fly very high in the sky. They have very good vision. And um, they also bring our prayers up to Ispamikase Mantu, um, up in the sky, you know, where creator is, they help to bring our prayers up there. And the eagle is, you know, such an amazing teacher because they're um, sometimes, you know, the crow, <laughs> the crow is like one of the, you know, craziest birds around. And it's one of the few birds that will, you know, attack, try to attack an eagle, you know, it'll go on it. But the eagle will just keep flying higher and higher and higher until the crows, you know, can't breathe anymore because the air comes so thin. So I think that's really a good symbol for all of us that, um, 
we always have our naysayers who are always trying to pull us down and jump on our backs. And um, it, it just reminds us to keep flying higher above all of that negativity that can sometimes be overwhelming. And to get to that point where you can look down and see the beauty that exists down here in Esquipa Bamatsu in this earth life. And there's a shiny side and a dull side as well, um, which reflect us about, you know, the, the times in life that are um, perhaps a little bit brighter. And sometimes there's in life, the times that are a little bit more difficult, but it's a balance between those two. And it's up to us as individuals to make sure that we look after ourselves so that we too are balanced and living in a good way and carrying ourselves respectfully um, throughout the land in a way that brings joy and peace and harmony to others and not, um, you know, sadness and despair and uh, those sorts of things as well. If you're just tuning in, uh, if you're just joining us, perhaps on the road today, live streaming us via the Mixler audio app, we're, we're talking to uh, physician uh, Dr. James McCocus. Uh, doctor, you've you've really uh, accomplished something remarkable, and and I know that that many Albertans and and many Canadians are are or will be very intrigued to hear about your approach to medicine and to healthcare. Uh, obviously, a very rich understanding of traditional Indigenous uh, methods, including medicines and ceremonies, uh, and then of course uh, what we might describe as modern medicine. Um, before we get into to your uh, your work with Vax Fest and and building trust in healthcare and and I'm very curious for your insights into uh, elders and 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 some vaccine hesitancy and all of these types of things. I I think people would really be curious to know how you got in. I mean, how, how you became a physician, how, what what led you to med school, uh, how you find that balance between uh, traditional methods and, and so called modern methods. Would you take us back a few years? Sure. Well, I, I remember like being four years old and wanting to be a doctor and my parents just always encouraged me to do that. And so, you know, like a lot of young people, I did all the things to get into university and um, to get into medical school. And I'm the first, you know, physician in our family. Uh, I have, you know, my mom did do university as well. Um, but the first physician in our family. So I never really had mentors to be like, okay, you have to do this, this, and this. And, and I got into medical school and they were giving us a tour and orientation and they're like, and this is the histology lab. And this is this lab. And I had, I'm like, what is histology? Like, I don't even know what that is. And I'm like, oh no, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do well here. Um, so, you know, got through that. And um, at the same time, our elders would always be saying to me, no sim like my grandchild go out and learn their medicine but come home and you have to learn our medicine too and so when i finished um medical school they started taking me under their wing to show me what our medicines are and i went and there's so many of like we're so blessed here in turtle island because so many of the things that we need to look after ourselves grow naturally across the prairies and in the boreal forest here. And I went from driving down the highway to seeing, you know, oh, there's lots of weeds, <laughs> to being like, 
wow, you know, there's heart medicine and lung medicine and kidney medicine and skin medicine and brain medicine and eye medicine and ear medicine, and all these sorts of things. And it also, you know, made me realize how important it is for us to protect our lands because some of these medicines grow in such a sensitive area that, you know, there's so few of them. And so when we go out on the lands and, you know, in Alberta, we talk a lot about development in terms of the oil and gas industry and things like that, which are important to maintain people's livelihoods and um, all of those things. But we also have to remember that um, the Indigenous medical system, the Cree medical system, and Anishinaabe medical system is on the land and in places that we need to protect so that we have something that we're leaving for the future generations. And so, you know, in COVID, I think we have a really good understanding of what happens to a medical system when it's under stress. It's been about 19 months that the medical system has been under stress. And we're to the point now in the province of Alberta and soon Saskatchewan, um, you know, where triage care is happening, where physicians will have to make those difficult decisions based on an algorithm of someone's age, if they're going to receive care. And people are starting to see how important the medical system is and what happens when it is uh, under stress and um, you know destroyed, <laughs> which has happened here in this province. Now you have to put that into perspective for indigenous people whose medical system has also been under attack and dismantled systematically by the Canadian state for the past 150 years, where we have not had access to our medical system. We couldn't leave our reserve for 66 years under the past system, which was implemented as policy and law by the elected government of this country, where our people in residential school were experimented on by physicians and scientists in either nutrition experiments where they withheld food from children and then gave them vitamins to see you know, if their condition improved or the development of vaccines, the BCG vaccine on the Fort Capel um, Indian Residential School children or the sterilization of indigenous women. And again, speaking to the fact that indigenous women are the landowners, when we reflect on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, is it no wonder that there's an overrepresentation of uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in this country when I said that indigenous women are the landowners and they're the leaders within our nation. So when you start to think about things from all of those perspectives, you can see why the situation exists that is been purposeful and which necessitates, you know, in, in VaxFest, for example, why we needed to target our um, and work with our Indigenous youth in a very different way that engage them where they're at. You know, Indigenous uh, VaxFest is... Um, 
is targeted for Indigenous youth and it uses Indigenous uh, in social media influencers like in this picture, Kendra Jesse and her partner, Notorious Cree, who has like over 3 million followers on TikTok. That guy is amazing. <laughs> that is. guy is amazing. Will you please, doctor, will you please tell him to return my DMs? Will you tell him to get in touch with me? I've been trying to book that. No offense. I've been trying to book that guy on the show since November. I'll message him now. Please do. That guy is <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. So, no, that's okay. So, you know, it's, it's um, you know, Dr. Potts and I, Dr. Lana Potts, she's a Blackfoot physician. And again, this is another like sort of parallel. Like, you know, they say Crees and Blackfeet can't get along. Well, you know, Dr. Potts and I helped to create um, the Power of 100 Presents Vaxfest. And the Power of 100 really is looking at the concept of, having 100% immunity for our people to ensure that we're here in another 100 years. And if you look at the symbol of it, it's um, it's a circle of buffalo that are facing outward and they're putting their buffalo calves in the center. Because when there's a threat to a buffalo herd, they do that. They put their next generation, their calves in the center so that they know if their calves are not protected, there will be no buffalo herd. And so they teach us to face that threat head on. And that's what we have to do with the COVID-19 pandemic is realizing that the threat is COVID-19. The solution is to protect our next generations and our elders, which is through the COVID-19 vaccine. And for, to, for our people to remember that in 1876, when our elders enshrined in treaty number six, the medicine chest clause, which again is a symbol of Western healthcare, Western medicine, um, and those sorts of things, they knew that in the future, there would be illnesses that would be coming to this land that we did not yet have medicines for. And so it's asserting our right, um, our elders' vision, our ancestors' um, vision for us, that we would be protected here today. And that's what, you know, um, using the COVID-19 vaccine is is protecting our future and realizing our ancestors vision and that they thought of us more than 150 years ago if there was a problem that we would have a, a a way out of it and so it's reminding our people that we are doing that you know it is a part of our teachings to look after one another and to think about the next generations and so it's an amazing, you know, it's kind of like Coachella meets your AHS vaccine clinic, yeah. right? Like it's fun. There's, you know, influencers get to take TikTok videos and Instagram and you win prizes and there's DJs. Oh, and just by the way, you also get to be protected against COVID-19. And so we've had some really amazing stories where young people were like, we came because we saw Notorious Cree was getting his vaccine or you know, this 90 year old elder the, who the nurses went to their house like three times um, and he wouldn't get it. He came out because he wanted to be celebrated. So we had Fonwood and Dallas Waskahat, who are amazing singers, um, you know, from the Satellite and Frog Lake Cree Nation, do an honor song for him because this is exactly what we're doing it for is our knowledge keepers and our young people. And they need to be celebrated. They don't have a positive experience with the healthcare system. And Every single person that gets vaccinated, we cheer for them, we clap for them, and we celebrate them because they're doing an amazing thing. They're addressing 
their systemic mistrust of the healthcare system because all the reasons that I shared with you. And so it does take a very different approach that's required. We're hoping our next clinic will be in the Onion Lake Cree Nation from September 15th to 16th and then moving, or sorry, 17th to 18th. Oh my goodness. 15th to 16th, October 15th to 16th. Um, and then moving through Saskatchewan and Alberta because 75% of all cases of COVID amongst First Nations are within the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, mm. which just so happen to have had the most number of residential schools in this country. So you can start to see the parallels as to why Indigenous peoples are mistrustful from the eradication of the buffalo, which is an act of genocide to the uh, implementation of residential schools, which is an act of genocide, to experimentation and forced sterilization of indigenous children and women, which is an act of genocide, to the restriction of movement, which is an act of genocide, to the scalping laws that existed in this country, which still exist in the province of Nova Scotia against Mi'kmaq people as an act of genocide. So again, on this day, September 30th, please frame your thinking around genocide and not cultural genocide. In the, after World War II, Canada sent representatives to the Convention on Genocide and purposefully removed, you know, Lemke's um, point of cultural genocide as a component of genocide. And they said they would deal with it here locally within this country under the... Um, under the, the statues of, of, of a, a form of crime. And so that, when you think about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they list cultural genocide because it's not punishable anymore under international law. And so we freely say in this country that there's been cultural genocide when it's in fact genocide. And we can say cultural genocide because after World War II, Canada removed that from the original definition of this country, you know, of genocide. And so you can see how there's been an insidious, systematic oppression that has forcefully denied Indigenous people to have any sort of existence um, from the beginning and the creation of this country with, you know, the founder, the first prime minister, who was the architect of residential school up until the convention on genocide and then continuing today um, with the situation that we have. So please go and read some of these authors by, you know, Arthur Manuel. Um, he has a couple of different books out. He was a leader with the Sekwetmik people, which is where the Witsewetan, um, you know, camp was. Sharon Venn is a Cree lawyer. Tamara Starblank is a Cree lawyer. James Daschuk is a non-Indigenous author that wrote about experimentation of Indigenous children. Is that so notorious? Is that notorious Cree getting back to you? Is he going to be? He's going <laughs> to join like, us later yeah, today. I'm going to be on. I'm is that what it is? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> I hope you know what people are. People are going to be scribbling down these authors' names, um, and, and I know because people today, I know it because they're telling us, and because I can feel it. People are looking for ways to infuse meaning into today, 
and to take action on this. And I mean, there's people even in our live chat right now, doctor, that are saying, you know, let me let me find an example here. Kim, for example, says I followed a whole bunch of these influencers because of the power 100. They've been awesome follows. She's just one of the people that are saying that. I mean, it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I hope that that sends a message uh, to, to the 40 million people that live here, uh, including indigenous people in Canada, that today is being taken seriously. You know, I, I, I saw some somebody make a bit of a I, do they still say dark humor? I mean, just sort of like a, you know, this this kind of a joke that was pretty biting yesterday about T-shirts, orange T-shirts. And I talked to Phyllis yesterday. I mentioned the founder of Orange Shirt, and I asked her how she feels about kind of the, the you know the the profit models of the monetization. And she said, "Hey, listen, there's a lot of big brands that are working with her uh, and with her team to ensure that the profits are going where they should go, etc." Um, anyway, the tweet said, "Don't buy your orange shirts from the Bay. They've been infused with smallpox." And I kind of went, "Right, the." the stories of these blankets. And I know that, I mean, it's just to me, that was like, it was a, I don't know if you want to call it a joke. I mean, it's more kind of commentary than anything. Uh, mm-hmm. But to me, yeah. it, it touched on what I wanted to talk to you about today as well, which is the enormous trust issues that so many indigenous people have based on generations, like you said, of, and, 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 and I mean, suppression is probably too soft of a word, isn't it? I mean, you have intentionally used the word genocide several times through our conversation to reiterate, and you've provided receipts uh, to reiterate exactly how significant this has been, this is, and how significant our action and our conversations need to be moving forward. And so much of that manifests itself through healthcare, which is why I think your perspective is so important and so fascinating. Thank you so much. And I just want to give people the opportunity because you know, a lot of folks are wondering how they can contribute and what they can do. You know, since Anthony and I were on the Amazing Race Canada in 2019, we've been having a fundraiser to build the Cree Cultural Healing Center on the Kihiwan Cree Nation. Um, we fundraised about $105,000 of our $250,000 goal, where we would have this um, space where elders and young people can come together and the young people can learn all of those things from the elders that um, they weren't allowed to teach when they were in residential school, that it can be a place of culture and revitalization and language and celebration and health, all of those things that we don't get funded for by the federal government in our own nations and our communities. And, you know, if just even 10,000 of your listeners wrote a check for $10 each to the Kahiwan Youth Center, we would be almost finished our goal. Um, the Kihiwan Youth Center is at the Kihiwan Health Services on the Kihiwan Cree Nation. Um, we would love to be finished our goal. COVID has put a real damper on our fundraising efforts. <laughs> and, um, you know, I would encourage people to do that. You would make a transformative difference to the young people, to the youth, to the children and the next generations within Kihiwan Cree Nation. James, do you know, is there a, is, is there a web address or can you point us in a specific direction? Because I know that people will take action on this. So we did have a GoFundMe um, and they, the website made some sort of changes and um, 
we need to uh, to put that back up. Okay. But if they were to just contact the Kahiwan Cree Nation, you know, the phone number is 7802 um, they would, you know, receive your donation and put that towards our fundraiser. And I hope that by next year, we'll be able to have shovels in the ground um, and that people, all people, you know, Indigenous people, non-Indigenous people can come there and learn about one another because that's what our relationship is supposed to be here on Turtle Island is equal sharing, equal learning in partnership, traveling down the river of life side by side, each in our own boat and canoe, which is represented in the two row wampum, the creator's law belt, which you can see uh, a symbol of what our relationship is supposed to be and um, I think, you know, having things like that would be a true celebration of uh, making our relationship right again. That's a solid commitment that people can do. And I would love to see that happen um, in our lifetime. <laughs> You and I, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. I know that we could speak for three hours and I know that this audience would would stick around the entire time and we would still feel like it had not been enough time. I'm so grateful for the uh, the you show. I mean, you just sort of exude this wisdom and uh, and uh, it's an incredible perspective. And I'm so grateful for it today, doctor. Um I'll tell you what, if, if, if there is something that develops with regards to a link or getting that fundraising, the GoFundMe back up, you just let us know. And this uh, this audience mobilizes quickly. Uh, we've seen it okay. before. So you let us know. We'll be more than happy to to push it out across our platforms. We'd love to have you back sometime uh, with Anthony. Uh, it would be a great yeah. conversation between the two of you. You guys are just a, just such a, such a dynamic duo. Um, and it's just wonderful to have a chance to connect with you again uh, for our audience. Dr. James Makokis, uh, a family physician from the Satellite Cree Nation uh, in northeastern Alberta. Of course, recent winner of season seven of the Amazing Race Canada with his husband, Anthony. He's been leading VaxFest across Treaty 6 uh, to boost vaccinations amongst indigenous peoples and protect the vulnerable, a nationally and internationally recognized leader and author in indigenous health and in particular transgender health. Uh, recently named to the Medical Post's 2021 Power List. And a good friend of this show. It's an honor to call you a friend. Thanks for making time for us today. Yes, thanks for having me. And I'll get Anthony to get on that website and get it back up and running again. <laughs> that sounds good, Doc. And we'll be happy to support it <laughs> in right. every single way we can. That's Dr. James okay. Makokis. Uh, just, what do you want me to say? Remarkable person. And, uh, and I appreciate all the live comments that we're getting right now. Lisa says this, this discussion is exactly why we need to listen uh, to First Nations, not not to talk at indigenous people. We need to stop trying to tell people what they need. That from Lisa. It's great to see two Beaver and Randy Thunderhorse checking in today with their own thoughts. Two Beaver with maybe, uh, I think, Sarah, one of the best compliments we've ever received on the show today. He said this show, he said, real talk helps me be less racist against white people. <laughs> I thought, you know, that's a pretty great compliment. I really appreciate that. But also, sure. but also, you can't blame them. Oh, I'm not saying I do. <laughs> I'm, that's what I'm saying. That's why I think it's a meaningful compliment. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I hope that if, if, if Dr. James goes back and hears this, I mean, you know, people are just saying they're honored to have shared this space. 
Sandra says this has been excellent time spent on the on a a federal statutory holiday to think to truly consider truth and reconciliation. Kim and Penny and and Lisa and Donna and everybody else just indicating their their gratitude for that time. I mean, KT, how about this? Thank you so much for your time and emotional labor today, Dr. James. BB says, yes, where women and children are honored. You know, we have so much to learn. Tony says she could listen to him for hours. You and me both, my friend. Mishif Sharon says today, I honor my older siblings uh, who were in residential schools. They were taken from my mom. There's only two left in my family from that generation. Sharon says love to my older brothers today. Scott says, I think that smallpox comment that that Hudson Bay T-shirt comment can be both humorous and commentary that makes you aware of the history of the Hudson's Bay Company. And Scott says, and I hope that's not too controversial. Here's the thing, Scott. I agree with you. And I think that stand up comics and uh, and armchair comedians on Twitter too, oftentimes provide an opening for us. to. T- I mean, I've referenced this before. Who are the first people back on the air? Who are the first people really? I mean, aside from the president of the United States making public comments following 9-11, it was the late night hosts and it was stand up comedians uh, that in their way uh, and in an inappropriate way. Uh, We're able to allow people to start to openly grieve and to talk. You look at, I mean, geez, do I want to go off on a tangent? Probably not really. But what started investigations into Bill Cosby? What kickstarted the Me Too movement? It was stand up comedians. And comedy can force us to encounter and grapple with tragedy. And uh, and who cares if it's controversial? Show's called Real Talk. And, uh, you know, facts are facts. In just a moment, uh, I'm very much looking forward to connecting with drummer and artist Mackenzie Brown. I've been privy to uh, her performances before. She's a remarkable talent. And uh, Mackenzie's coming up in just a second. We want to remind you, of course, that that broadcasts like this happen and are possible because we have um, an amazing team of builders, the Real Talk sponsors that each and every day ensure that this real talk happens. And that includes the team at Jet Set Parking. You know, starting in a week from now, on October 7th, you can fly nonstop from Edmonton to Phoenix. Nonstop. Starting October 7th, if you're on your way there or on your way anywhere out of the Edmonton International Airport, why not park your money in the bank, park your car at Jet Set? If you go online right now to jetsetparking.com, you can use the promo code REALTALK to park for $8 a day for any travel by the end of 2022. The promo code REALTALK. You can park for $8 a day, not an hour, $8 a day for any travel by the end of 2022. Just pre-book it at jetsetparking.com. They're locally owned, and I guarantee you'll love them. Big shout out to our friends at Eden Landscaping. No, they were one of the first to get on board here on Real Talk. They just said, we love what you guys are doing. Conversation that makes us think, sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. We're proud to partner with them, too. You know, we've heard from a lot of you. The minute that we rolled out our partnership with Eden Landscaping, you can check them out online at landscapeedmonton.ca. We started hearing from some of you that have hired them multiple times, that have referred them based on the work that they've done for you, bringing your outdoor space to life. It all starts with a conversation about design, 
drawing up plans and then putting it into motion. They don't stop until you're happy. We recommend Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. One of our biggest partners is the team at Park Power. We're so proud of the fact that they take 10% of their electricity profits and plug them back into, you see what I did there, plug them back into nonprofits in the communities where they live and work. I can't help it. I'm a dad. What do you want me to do? The promo code 2021-REALTALK means that when you take your business to Park Power, internet, electricity, natural gas, you know how it goes, right? Real Talkers, 70 bucks off your first bill. They're going to buy you dinner. There's no catch. There's no strings attached. 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. And speaking of power, you're looking to get off the grid, maybe go net zero. You know, these two companies have actually worked together. I was hearing that from Park Power. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, the team at Kubi Energy does an amazing job. This is going to be a crossover ad mention. Uh, I was talking to Chris at Park Power. He says, when you're talking about Kubi Energy, he says, you should mention this is kind of we've never really done this type of crossover ad before. He says, Park Power, you can actually get rebates and refunds. So people that have solar capacity that exceeds what they're using they're actually getting refunds on their bills and i know that this is something that jake and the team at kubi energy love to talk about as well they're providing solar energy solutions to power your life you can get a free quote today commercial residential industrial at kubienergy.ca and make sure you give them a follow on instagram feels like almost every day they're posting a photo of a new installation they're doing i love it because it gives me new ideas i go oh yeah solar i never thought of that application you know agriculture for example whole bunch of people are doing it and kubi's doing it the best in western canada at kubienergy.ca Eat Your Words, presented by Prairie Catering, is coming up later on in the broadcast. Uh, but I should eat my words, as I've just been informed that Two Beaver is, in fact, a Dene woman on our live chat. My apologies. And uh, we're so grateful that Two Beaver uh, shows up, uh, feels to me like every single day. And uh, so many of you that join us on the live chat. There's, the, there's this real phenomenon that happens. The majority of our audience is, on a, is downloading the podcast. That's just how the numbers work out. Uh, but there's this group of remarkable individuals that every single morning meet up at 1030 Eastern time at 830 Mountain time, and they all wish each other a good morning. There are these glad tidings that kick off our broadcast every morning. I, I, I sort of see it as like, a you know, people that sort of like buckle up on an aircraft as we taxi down the tarmac and get ready to take off and everyone with their pleasantries and their niceties. And there's been supports, too. We've, we've seen some gut-wrenching stuff shared on our live chat. People talking about tough days they're having or tough weeks they're having or checking out on interviews because it, it triggers them in a way that they're maybe not prepared for. And then the, this audience, this community comes to support them. And I just, quite frankly, I've never seen anything like it. In an almost 20-year broadcast career, I've never seen anything like it. And I'm so grateful for you, the audience that shows up on days like today to have important conversations. Our next guest is a First Nations Cree woman from the Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation. She's a performer, a drummer, a tourism entrepreneur, a philanthropist, an advocate for at-risk youth, and just an all-around remarkable person. Uh, What a pleasure to welcome to the program, making her Real Talk debut, Mackenzie Brown. Good morning, friend. Morning, Tanseno Totomak. (laughs) 
you've got this smile. I don't know how to describe it for the people listening on the podcast, but it's it's just like fills the room and uh, your enthusiasm. Uh, remarkable. I've had a, a, the honor of uh, of witnessing you and your mom drumming together, and uh, it truly is something special. Let me ask you first, Mackenzie. Um, what today means to you, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, the first one that's being observed by millions of people across the country. What does it mean to you personally? That's a great question. Um, for me, I think National Truth and Reconciliation Day, like it's funny because if you would have asked me this like a couple months ago, my answer probably would have been very different. Mm. Uh, I think the last couple months have been really hard for indigenous communities. I know for myself, um, just taking time for myself to really like grieve. Uh, that's what I'm doing today. You know, typically this would be a day that I would be full with gigs and drumming and, and performances. And I had so many requests and I just, I just had to take this day to just like sit because it's been a lot of emotional labor. And so I see that on one side for our indigenous communities. Then on the other side, I see this is a day where it is a, a fantastic opportunity to learn. Um, but I also want to point out that this is the start of that, right? Like, I think a lot of people are witnessing this day and taking this day to learn, but there's 365 other days of the year that that Indigenous people are still living and we're still existing. And so while this is a day for us to take a pause and to think about what has been going on recently, historically, it's also a day that we need to continue on throughout the year as well. I want to refer people to uh, a guest blog post that that you authored. As a matter of fact, and it, maybe it's a little self-serving because it's on my wife's platform, but people can check it out at carrieskelton.com, uh, a post that you published, as a matter of fact, just about a week ago, Mackenzie, Truth Coming to Light. Um, I'd love for you to take us into the premise of this and, and what truth coming to light means to you and, and what you'd like it to mean for our audience today. Yeah, so I was really happy that Carrie had reached out to me. You know, she actually reached out to me over a year ago and I took over her Instagram and she had reached out to me, you know, to give to give me that platform to amplify Indigenous voices. And when I originally wrote the blog, it was a little while prior and I had wanted to write a blog for, you know, National Indigenous Peoples Day. And then I realized that, it's actually okay if it's not posted on that day or even posted on September 30th, because we need to keep our reflections every single day, as I had mentioned prior. And so really what this blog is about is it's my own personal story. It's the personal story of my, my Nukam, who I never got to meet because she went to residential schools and, and just like the trauma that she experienced uh, her life ended up ending early. And then my mom was a part of the 60s scoop. And so she grew up in a non-Indigenous household. And so while she was reclaiming her indigeneity when I was growing up, I was living in it. And so it's it's a lot of these different kinds of thoughts, you know, that I've put into this blog and and the idea of, you know, Canada Day. I didn't end up celebrating Canada Day because it was right after the announcements. My birthday was when 281 more children were found. Uh, so it 
just kind of takes all of these things and puts them into one blog. And then there's a lot of uh, information at the end of the blog too, you know, books that I recommend, uh, easy steps towards reconciliation, how you can show allyship so that it's not a performative thing. Um, And so, yeah, it's really, it's really just everything that I ended up putting into one blog. And I'm, I'm really happy that it's out there. You you talk about your your grandmother and and uh, the tragedy around uh, you know her residential school experience and and ultimately her death. Your mom, uh, a survivor of the '60s scoop, is that the type of thing, Mackenzie? That that you as as a young girl uh, were made aware of? Did, did did you have a uh, a meaningful understanding of what your mom or your grandmother had endured, or was it was it the type of household where uh, to a certain degree you were you might say protected? Yeah, that's a great question. So I found out about my family's story when I was in grade three. And that's because we had to do uh, one of those family trees. And I came home and I opened up my assignment and I said to my mom, hey, we have to do our family tree. And she had mentioned to me, you know, I always knew like I have an auntie who's like, blonde hair, blue eyes, like, and then my, and then my mom and my uncle are like, obviously very dark skinned. Uh, and so I just, I, I think I knew subconsciously as a young child, but didn't really put two and two together. Right. That's a big, you know, we talk about giving our youth a suitcase that's too heavy for them to carry. And so there are ways that you can talk about, you know, residential school, this is the 60s scoop in a way that it, is isn't such a burden to them but yeah it wasn't until grade three that I really found out the whole the whole story and my mom at first didn't want to talk about it because she said it's so complicated but at the end of the day you know 70 percent of children in the 60s were scooped it's not it's not like yes it's complicated but it's not unique Um, And so this is a story that needs to be shared. And it's a story that did end up changing my identity, who I am as a Nehao Esquewak, as a Cree woman. Um, But yeah, something that's really important and defines who I am as a person. Would you tell us about your drumming and, 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 and how it came about this expression. And my understanding, I mean, you're, I should mention that you, you hold a degree in child and youth care and you've worked, uh, you have plenty of experience working with vulnerable youth. And my understanding is that you've integrated drumming into some of this work. It's obviously very meaningful to you. Yeah, definitely. So I became a drummer and singer when I was about 12 years old. Uh, I primarily drum and sing with my mom. We're called Warrior Women on Otenikyu Esquayo. And yeah, you know, we've been we've we've been lucky. We've been all over the world drumming and singing right before the pandemic. We were in Africa. We flew back in the pandemic, which was kind of wild. But uh, there are gifts from the drum that I that I can't explain. There are situations that we've been put into. There are people that I've met through the drum. Uh, and that is that is purely because the drum beat, the heartbeat, that is the very first sound that we ever hear, right? It's the thing that connects all of us. And it's not our own heartbeat that we hear. It's actually the heartbeat of our mom when we're in the womb. So I use drumming and singing when I was working with vulnerable youth because I was able to get much further 
when I sat down with a, with a youth and drummed and sang and cried with them than when I was using my counseling skills. And, you know, I actually went to New Zealand for three months and that's where I did my practicum. And I worked at a Kapapa Māori organization, which is a, an indigenous run organization for indigenous people using indigenous ways of knowing, doing and being in, in practice for mental health, for physical health. And it's, that's the thing is when you have indigenous people, you have to work with them through an indigenous lens. Um, it's who we are innately. We have blood memory that runs in our veins from our ancestors and ancestors and ancestors, right? And so you have to use these traditional ways and work with people through through indigenous ways of knowing, doing, and, and being, and you get much further than, than using Western counseling skills or, you know, even James was chatting about the balance, right? You know, everything's a balance. You can use both. You can use traditional means and you can use contemporary means and they're better together uh, than they are apart from one another. I was so excited uh, when both uh, Dr. James and yourself agreed to join us. You're 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 kind of this, you know, I mean, although James joked about a journalist that called him a middle aged physician, but but you're you're both the next generation. You're both these young community leaders. And I think it's so encouraging um, and and it's remarkable to see, you know, James talk about, you know, gaining some proficiency in language and you and these expressions of culture. And I want to talk about your indigenous tourism advocacy in a moment as well. But but uh, when you look around uh, to your peers and when you see indigenous, you know, young indigenous people in Canada, uh, do you see what you hope to see? Uh, with regards to understanding culture, reinfusing some of these expressions and celebrations of culture, these ceremonies, do you see it happening? Man, our indigenous youth are powerful. It's it's amazing. I don't know if it's the you know the uprising technology, the wealth of information that people have at their fingertips, but indigenous youth, they're they're our next generation and they're, they're going to blow us away. I, I, I have full trust, full faith in them. You know, they're strong people. They are so smart. We have so much to learn from with our youth. And that's really exciting for me because everything that I do as an Indigenous person is for the next generation. You know, the work that I do in tourism, the work that I do in advocacy, absolutely everything, it's, it is for the next generation because they are the people that are going to take over this earth and they're going to do it really well. You know, we see, we see phenomenal indigenous youth and I, you know, we hear that term, the future is indigenous. And I think that that's so true because they're strong, they're powerful, they're resilient, and they're taking back the stories that we weren't able to share. And I think that there's a lot of power in that. Uh, Mackenzie, when it comes to, I mean, we talked, uh, I, I had an opportunity, uh, it was an honor to, to interview the chief of the Cowessis First Nation uh, shortly after uh, they had announced an agreement with the federal government. The prime minister uh, attended and they talked about sovereignty uh, when it comes to essentially child and family services to children in care mm -hmm. and how that's such an important step for that First Nation and, and for indigenous people across Canada to begin the healing process, these seven generations. Uh, you've worked in this field uh, and I would imagine that you've probably seen attempts 
where maybe indigenous ideologies, uh, traditions or experiences have been implemented and have been ineffective. Uh, have you? You know, that's that's a really interesting question, because, yeah, like my background is in child and youth care services um, and disproportionately indigenous children are in child and family services. You know, since 2018, 69% of children in care are Indigenous, even though we make up 10% of the population. Um, and to this day, majority of child and, child and youth care, child family services are run by, you know, the Catholic Social Services Program or don't really cater to Indigenous ways of knowing doing being. Um, it's very exciting for me to hear that First Nations are able to start regaining that and control over that because we have different ways of child rearing and raising raising youth that don't fit with the western society or those western ideologies that's one of the reasons why the 60s scoop happened and one of the reasons why still to this day we see so many indigenous children in care is because those worldviews have clashed right um so yeah that's that's a that's a good question i'm I, I haven't quite seen that, uh, but yeah, I was uh, I was reading. The reason I asked is I was I was just reading some of some of your writing and, and you know, just talking about, you know, the different approaches province to province when it comes to foster care, group care, residential care. And and, and oftentimes, you know, we take a look at, you know, our home soil, so to speak, here in Alberta, where we live and where we're broadcasting from. And we wonder how Alberta's service delivery stacks up and whether or not it's driven by intuition and empathy and understanding and evidence and all of the things that you'd like to see policy based on. And I think that the general population lacks an awareness or an understanding of, of what is effective implementation um, of tradition and best practice in many of these circumstances. And I think generally speaking, myself included, we lack an understanding of policies that are in place uh, to ensure that there uh, can be healthy outcomes with children in care. Uh, yesterday, it, it has, I don't know if I want to say nothing to do with our conversation today, but we talked about human trafficking yesterday. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a very powerful comment from, I think it was Terry who was watching. And she said, you know, when it comes, to, she says, if you've been involved at all in the foster care system, you're very aware of the reality of human trafficking. And it, hit, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I realized that, Absolutely. you know, I don't I don't know that the average person in Canada would be able to to really, when put on the spot, describe some of the pervasive issues and problems and, and how we might address them. And I know that you've walked miles in those shoes. And I was curious for your perspective on that. Definitely. You know, I've heard several quotes from elders that the devil that was residential schools has been put into the child and family services. Um, and I know for myself, I, I have experienced that. Of course, I'm not, I'm not washing over and saying that all, all ways that we deal with children and youth within, within Alberta is, is not good. I have seen effective ways that it's been done, but overwhelmingly I have seen non-effective ways mm. of, of working with children and youth within, within the province of Alberta. Um, 
yeah, both from a cultural standpoint to also, you know, burnout is incredibly high. Um, And so even to give good care for our children, like we have to have equitable wages, which don't exist in child and youth care um, or social services, all these different things. There's typically benefits are non-existent in these kind of in these kind of situations as well. So we're having high burnout and, you know, these people are working directly with children and youth and what kind of environment does that create when when you're burnt out yourself right so there's there's so there's it's it's an onion it's an onion to unpack for sure um yeah Mackenzie uh, Mackenzie Brown our guest if you're just joining us uh, I want to talk to you about indigenous tourism we we, we, reconciliation it's it's a big word like a capital R people Mm -hmm. talk about reconciliation yesterday reconciliation was put on our radar and when you when you start to explore what reconciliation means or how it can manifest itself or how it can happen um, a lot of times, you know, people will talk about regaining culture, uh, better understanding the land and the history of the land and the people that have occupied or lived on the land uh, or lived off the land. Um, and then a big part of that as well is economic opportunity. And I feel like this when we talk about indigenous tourism, which is right in your wheelhouse, uh, there's kind of a marriage there of thoughts around tradition, understanding the land and economic opportunity. Uh, your face lights up when I mention it. Can, can you take us into what you're working on and, and why it's so important to you? Absolutely. So I do. I, I work for, I'm the manager of development for Indigenous Tourism Alberta. I worked in Indigenous Tourism basically since I was about 16, uh, not knowing it, right? I'm a traditional drummer and singer. And we got involved in tourism first with the Jasper Dark Skies Festival. And then, uh, you know, a, a person from the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge found us and and he was like, this you're exactly what we're looking for. You know, we have international tourists that come in. We want to provide them with, with an authentic Indigenous experience. And so that was how I found myself in Indigenous tourism. And then I started working for the government of Alberta, Explore Edmonton, and now ITA for quite a while. So when we look at Indigenous tourism, we look at reclaiming our stories, sharing our stories, sharing our songs, and economic sovereignty. You know, because when you see Indigenous tourism, it is a authentic way for you, for visitors to learn about Indigenous peoples through our own voices, and then for us to have economic sovereignty, because then the money that is, you know, from the tourism industry comes directly to us as Indigenous people or directly to our communities. Uh, We have community tourism that's created across across Alberta. You know, we see River Cree Resort and Casino. We see Blackfoot Crossing, Métis Crossing. All of these all of these places are sharing our authentic story through our own voices. And then that money is employing Indigenous people, employing youth who are learning about their culture and then going back into our communities. Um, I'm actually here right now at the Grey Eagle Resort and Casino, one of my favorite places. And the Satina Museum that is here on Satina land, it directly funds their Satina Gunaha Institution, which is a language program. So right now, 
children in Sutina are learning their language and it's being directly funded through tourism. So it's something that I'm obviously very passionate about. Tourism was the reason why I know my songs. It's the reason why I know my language. It it is the reason why my mom is a full-time drummer, singer, and medicine woman. Um, So it's a way for us to reclaim our traditional ways of knowing, doing, being, and still be able to exist within a society that we need money because it provides that opportunity to us. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, just absolutely uh, amazing to, to, to learn and, and recognize. I think most people, you know, I'm looking at, at some of our live chat comments and people that are watching now, and it's like you're putting things on people's radar that will allow them access points, right? And entry points, because I, I, I feel like there's a nation here that is, that is yearning for sincere movement, do, do you feel that that groundswell? I mean, in, in particular, I mean, obviously, as an indigenous woman, you have your perspective and you talk, we, we ask you about, indig- you know, peers and and uh, indigenous people across the country. But with regards to non-indigenous people today, um, I think many uh, approach today from a point of, of, of deep sincerity uh, and humility. Uh, but but maybe some some it's a hard word, but it's some ignorance as well, uh, myself included on how to participate and how to learn and how to support. Um, do you feel that? I do. I do feel that. I think that there are a lot of non-Indigenous people who want to be allies but don't know where to start, Yeah. right? And I think that Indigenous tourism is a fantastic way. It's an approachable way for people to learn about the people in their own backyard through their own voices. Right. Uh, yeah. And so I know like we, we have 157 members across Canada. That means 157 different indigenous tourism businesses in development, you know, market ready, export ready, all those different kinds of, uh, business levels. But if you're interested, you can head to our website, indigenous tourism, Alberta.ca, and you can find out who's in your backyard. You can go on a plant walk. You can go on a guided hike. You can go and do a fireside chatter, a drumming experience, right? There's there's a lot a lot of people out there whose business is is providing information and ways for you to learn about who we are as Indigenous people. We talked uh, just yesterday about the the Jasper Dark Sky Festival. It's coming up. People can check out jasper.travel slash real talk. We featured your mom, as a matter of fact, on one of our My Jasper Memories uh, a number of weeks ago. And people can find that that archive there. Um, Are you going to be you're performing there again this this year? That's coming up this month, right? That's coming up in just a couple of weeks. I know I am. I'm going to be there the Thursday, Friday and Saturday and then. New to this to this festival, we are doing a event called Pakisimen, which is like an ode to saying good night to the sun. And so that's going to be on this Saturday on the 25th of October. And it's going to be a free event. Uh, we're bringing in a couple of amazing artists, Sandra Lamouche, who's a, a fantastic hoop dancer. We have Ayla Modest and her sister, Lizzie Peakyfoot. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, my mom and my sister, Teresa Westhaver, part of Warrior Women. We're going to be drumming and singing for that event as well. Amazing stuff. Because uh, I know Mackenzie, I can guarantee it. Uh, I know people are going to say, when and where can we hear her drum? <laughs> people just are going to want to know that as soon as they hear this interview. So that's the answer to the question. And of course, people can check out more uh, on your website. H- how do you pronounce that? Is is that Kamamak? 
How do you say that? <laughs> that that's so funny. It's a uh, Kamamak. Yeah, so Kamamak. So Kamamak is my traditional name. Mackenzie is my given name, but my traditional name Kamamak means the butterfly. The butterfly. Is there mm-hmm. is there a story behind that? There is there is a story behind it. I was gifted it by my elder because uh, you know, butterflies go and it's it's funny that I'm telling this story, especially like, you know, on National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Butterflies go through periods of darkness, right? When they're in their cocoon and they come out bright and beautiful and colorful. And so that was something that my elder wanted me to always hold true to myself. It's literally my name, right? So I reflect on that when I'm going through hard times, uh, that there is good coming around the corner. There is light that will come. And that's why my blog is even called, you know, truth and you know like darkness into light like shedding shedding light on the truth because it's it's a hard time it is a hard time and we know that things will get better there's always light at the end of the tunnel and that's that reminds me every day beautiful uh that's k-a-m-a-m-a-k dot c-a uh it's been an honor and and a pleasure uh to have Mackenzie brown join us uh, today, uh, doing amazing work as a performer and an advocate, uh, as I say, a mover and a shaker, my friend. And uh, thanks so much. We appreciate you sharing uh, some time on this very significant and special day with us today here on Real Talk. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mackenzie. You can uh, follow the links that uh, Sarah Hoyles has been putting in the live chat. And of course, we'll tweet those out as well uh, from our account, Real Talk RJ. Again, Mackenzie's website, K A M A. M-A-K dot C-A. Every Thursday, uh, courtesy of our friends at Prairie Catering, we, we, we provide an opportunity. We wanted to do something that would be fitting for today. Sometimes we have a little fun with this next feature, and, and sometimes it gets pretty serious. And uh, we weren't going to bump it to a Wednesday or a Friday just because of the serious tone of today's show. Uh, we figured we would still take the opportunity to invite somebody to eat your words, courtesy of Prairie Catering. So here we've clipped a few of the nation's leading politicians from the federal election debates just a short time ago. Here they are. Over the past 150 years, Canada has failed in its relationship with Indigenous peoples. Uh, people who we should be uh, working with and shared stewardship of the land, working with in partnership uh, as we draw from the bounty and the beauty of this land to build a better future for all. We can no longer say that we recognize the calls to action. We need a plan to achieve them. And what I'm proposing is a plan that builds partnerships, that builds governance, that has Indigenous leaders, incredible ones like Jody Wilson-Raybould, to allow us to actually hold ourselves to account. All, all parties, all future governments. This is the biggest scar in the history of Canada. And we have to tackle it, not just with good intentions, but with a good plan to deliver for all Indigenous people. We need to implement all the calls to justice. We need to listen to Indigenous women and girls. We need to make sure that they're safe and we have the steps that they've laid out that we need to follow. All right. So here's the deal. This is not a partisan issue. Not at a high level anyway, not today. It's time for Canada's political leaders to get serious 
about reconciliation across the board, across the aisle, across the country. What a powerful conversation we had yesterday with the founder of Orange Shirt Day and residential school survivor herself, Phyllis Webstad, who talked to us about reconciliation. Well, millions of Canadians will take today to reflect on ways that we can do our part to begin to make things right, to hit the truth head on, to understand where the work begins, to get past lip service. I implore our politicians at every level to do the same. What does meaningful reconciliation look like in the communities? that you represent? What does courageous political leadership look like? Where do we want to be one or five or 20 years from now? Enough talk. Let's eat those words. It's time for reconciliation. Eat Your Words every week is presented by our friends at Prairie Catering. They offer corporate catering for office meetings, in-person or virtual. They can deliver. You can host business meetings and conferences in safe ways. They're ensuring that at the beautiful Art Gallery of Alberta, from executive boardrooms to that beautiful state-of-the-art theater, they can host at proper times up to 300 people. In the meantime, if you're planning ahead for the next big event, you'll get 20% off any rental space at the Art Gallery of Alberta for your next corporate function when you mention Eat Your Words right here on Real Talk. That's valid for 2021 rental dates. Mention Eat Your Words on Real Talk. This is presented by Prairie Catering. We so appreciate the comments that you've been bringing to the table here. And our live chat today has been such an encouragement. So many of you have made comments about what you're doing today to take action, to infuse meaning into your day. And I asked you to tell us about it on my Twitter. I asked you, how are you making today meaningful? And it's been amazing to hear from real talkers that have been telling us, you know, you've, you've, you've been telling us that, that today you don't want it to just be a, a day off. You don't want it to just be a day out of the office. Jackie says, you know, I'm participating in the Bent Arrow Facebook live event this afternoon. I'm so glad that Jackie shared the link to that. It goes today from 1 to 4 p.m. Mountain, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. And if you follow me on Twitter, just look in the comments there. Jackie's left the link there. Terry says that she'll be amplifying the voices of others and sharing photos and stories of her Cree and Métis family history. Kim's ordered books from indigenous publishers, says she's going to read Sugar Falls today with her little one, a graphic novel about a residential school story. Donna, power watcher on Twitter, says we're listening to Real Talk today to learn and to understand and to be educated on this national day for truth and reconciliation. Others of you like Corinne in Calgary says, you know, Storybook YYC is partnering Storybook Theater with the Aboriginal Friendship Center in Calgary with a 90 minute virtual event. Uh, Corinne says we're going to be attending that. Uh, they'll be uh, she'll be reading from from the ashes by Jesse Thistle as well. That's the second time that's been mentioned today. Corinne says we I am determined to find ways for this not just to be a day off. How about this from Justin who says we're holding a small outdoor feast for indigenous children in care. 
so they can meet and be with Elder Maggie Loney. And he says, I wrote about it here and provides a link. Please do, Real Talkers, feel free to provide links uh, to, to resources or to events, in particular virtual events that you think others might be interested in knowing about. Of course, it goes without saying you'll be able to access those from wherever you're tuning in from. And a great opportunity to make sure that today counts this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This next guest is an expert in an area that I don't know a ton about. And so I am among those that will endeavor to learn more about status and technology and the marriage of the two. Lawrence Lewis is the founder and CEO of One Feather, a member of the Wee Kai Nation and uh, presently uh, joining us from Victoria, British Columbia. Lawrence, welcome to Real Talk. It's wonderful to have you here today. Thanks for having me on board. Gila Kessler. I've been asking each of our guests today the same first question, which is what does this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation mean to you personally? Yeah, for me personally, uh, you know, thanks for asking that question. For me personally, it means uh, an opportunity to reflect uh, and I think refocus on uh, double down on the work we do now, which is, you know, really to change that uh, Indigenous digital experience through innovation and tradition. And so to look at concepts of sovereign identity and what it means to be Indigenous in this country uh, and re-envision how we can use that digital space to advance um, uh, truth and reconciliation to undo uh, the impacts of colonialism uh, and uh, residential school uh, through reimagining how we interface with each other. This is uh, this is something I think most people will not have had any conversation about. And so I know that you're going to we're going to have a keen audience right now. I want to let people know that that if they'd like, uh, they can follow along with the conversation by viewing your website, onefeather.ca, planting seeds of sovereignty in the digital era to lift our people up for indigenous peoples and our nations. What is one feather for somebody that is not familiar with this at all? Can you take us into it? Sure. We're an Indigenous technology company, and uh, what that means is we're building digital solutions through an Indigenous lens and that shared lived experience so that the solutions we provide resonate with Indigenous people. They're designed specifically for Indigenous people. And really what they're doing are taking all these antiquated and archaic processes, which either by design, uh, intent, or by accident, continually continue to marginalize, displace uh, Indigenous people across this country. Uh, and let's change that. Let's shift that. Let's redefine that experience so it lifts our people up. It removes barriers to participation, you know, uh, and just makes it um, that much, uh, we, we use terminology, just a, a much more clean interface. So let's remove everything that's stopping our ability to participate in governance decision-making, uh, in uh, sovereign identity, uh, in um, uh, engaging with our with our communities, and let's create digital technology that actually lifts our communities up, brings our communities together through a social and cultural interface that's relevant and material, and not contribute to technologies that continue to divide, separate, and marginalize, and otherwise, I think, deconstruct what it means to be Indigenous in this country. Can you, can you give us an example, or, or feel free to give us several examples of, of where a lack of technology or lagging behind in technology continues to to hold indigenous people down? What, what sort of stuff are we talking about? 
Oh man, where do we even start? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, one feather was born um, uh, uh, providing uh, uh, what would, what you would think would be uh, uh, an interface that all of us take for granted, and that is just to participate in your community's decision-making processes. So we're talking about referendums or elections and that kind of stuff. And so, one feather was you know originally conceived to be this communication tool that would allow members to participate in that political conversation, but quickly pivoted to providing a digital solution where members could vote. Uh, through a, effectively an electronic ballot in those uh, in those decisions, and so, you know, in 2014 we we wrote a paper about this, and and we started to design it. In 2015 we 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 did our first electronic ballot, and what we discovered in that first vote was that 70% of the members chose to vote electronically uh, in that in that really important community decision. Uh, we increased voter participation by over 40% in that one event alone, uh, and just opened up a whole new way for that nation to engage with its members and that nation today is one of those nations where they have when they have a, a, a an engagement around some important subject matter almost has a 92 percent participation rate in that decision making wow i mean that's amazing right um and they still use all the traditional forms of engagement so paper phone you know mail um but what you know electronic or what digital solutions can provide when they're when they're built well uh, and they matter and they're relevant to the audience i think can facilitate um a much greater participation and engagement so these are folks that for reasons of geography they're not in community they don't have the you know they or they live in an urban center and so you know getting to some place across the city is just it's not it's not it's just not practical you know there's costs involved there's time involved um, huge resources. So, you know, money and energy to get there. And while it's really important to you, like you, you, you know, you have a very busy day. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta budget your time and what you do and when you do it. And if we can provide a solution that allows you to contribute in a really valuable way, but doesn't suck the life out of you. Uh, yeah, I think that's fantastic. So, you know, that's one example, right? That providing that ability to participate in your government election or a really important vote uh, where before you just couldn't because it cost you time and money and resources and energy. And if you can do that from the comfort of your table uh, and do it in a safe, secure way that uh, I think acknowledges that, uh, your indigenous sovereignty and protects your identity and through all those expectations in terms of that digital interface. Wow, I think that's fantastic. That's the stuff that gets us excited every single day. And I just can't, you know, when I already talk about this stuff, I just smile because I think that's revolutionary in terms of truth and reconciliation, right? Let's redefine this whole experience from that indigenous perspective, you know, as, as I think as your previous comment, commentators have indicated, you know, it's got to be designed by indigenous people for Indigenous people, right? Not by someone else for Indigenous folks. So as an Indigenous company, we really value our role in taking a lead in this and defining it in a way that makes sense to our people. Right? I was I was going to comment uh, before you did on the enthusiasm that you exude when you talk about this. People listening on the podcast can probably hear you smiling. That's a thing. You can tell when somebody's enthusiastic and they're talking. How did your I'm always curious to pick people's brains on how like your personal experience and your professional experience. Did you, did you have this moment? Did you have this epiphany where where you realized that there was this 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 void that, uh, you know, this space that one feather could fill? Was it was it one thing? Was it a series of things? Oh, I think it was a lifetime of things. You know, I spent my career working with indigenous communities across the country. I mean, I, you know, almost 25 years now and in some executive capacity. So as a band manager or executive someplace. Uh, I also, you know, spent a couple of years working for the provincial government. I spent a year working for the AFN and I spent a lifetime working for the federal government for a couple of months um, uh, way back at the start of my career. And, what, you know, what I, as an indigenous person who was in a senior role there, what I realized was there was a total absence of solutions built 
by Indigenous people for Indigenous people. And so I always struggled with the administrative strain and pain of all these interfaces. And, you know, why does this have to be so hard? Why does this have to be so difficult? Who designed these processes? They don't make any sense from an Indigenous perspective. These are just, they're ridiculous or they're, you know, paternal. They're just, you know, condescending. They continue to marginalize us. And so, um, in 2014, I was like, you know, enough is enough. I, I can I can complain about this, I can talk about this, or I can actually do something about this. And I just decided it's time to do something. Uh, and uh, I think the timing was well. Uh, and certainly what I'm learning now as I'm in this digital space is that as digital technologies evolve at such a rapid pace, um, we have an incredible responsibility to, to get this right. And even though we may get it wrong from time to time, check in with our Indigenous communities and make sure we, we get it right more often than we get it wrong. Because uh, it's a huge, diverse country, right, of Indigenous folks. And, and we're trying to provide this, this digital solution, uh, you know, sure, built by an Indigenous company. But, you know, sometimes we got to tweak it uh, just, like, uh, just like any other enterprise out there yeah. to, uh, to, to meet the needs of our, our clients, right? Yeah, and, and I would imagine that there have probably been some some scenarios or circumstances where you would, you would identify a problem or someone would be in touch with you and you'd go, we, we have a fix for that. And then there have probably been some challenges or, or opportunities as an entrepreneur might view them um, where you didn't see it coming. And then, and then the light bulb goes on and you say, we can impact change there. We can do something there. Has, has there been something in that context that you're particularly proud of? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all the time. You know, I don't think a month goes by that we don't realize that we could iterate or do something better or different, right? And so, particularly around concepts, you know, and this is where we're really focused now on these concepts of sovereign identity and finding a balance between an indigenous individual sovereign rights as an indigenous person, but also in the context of Canada, and then as a citizen of Canada, and then in the context of that first nation itself, their sovereign rights, and how do we find a balance between those in that digital space so that we're looking after the the, the rights uh, and interests of an individual versus the rights and interests of a nation uh, who's trying to provide service. So what, that balance is particularly challenging. And so we're, we're always navigating that and finding a, uh, easier ways and better, cleaner ways to do that so that we can say with absolute confidence that the service we're providing protects your Indigenous individual sovereign rights, but also your nation's sovereign rights. Uh, and so those things are uh, um, just really exciting for us because I think if we can do that really well, that interface between those, you know, indigenous people and nations with with other agents like Canada or banking solutions or whatever just becomes so much easier. And so, I think to specifically answer your question, what we designed uh, uh, through our KYC system, our Know Your Customer processes, where we can verify and authenticate your indigenous identity and, and give you sovereign identity inside of our platform, we're now able to um, use that interface with a banking solution so that as an indigenous person, you can create a digital bank account or create a bank account without ever having to set foot in a bank. Right. So you don't need to suffer those kind of indignities or challenges of going into a bank and, and not being able to create a bank account because you don't necessarily have the ability to complete all the paperwork or the IDs or other components to that. And so we're redefining that through a digital solution. I think that's very exciting. And that's the stuff that uh, you know also uh, gives me shivers and keeps me smiling from you. Yeah, well, and I bet keeps you motivated and keeps you driving mm -hmm. your company forward and, and creating more opportunities, removing more barriers. I mean, I, I, I keep referencing uh, a conversation I had yesterday, um, you know, the founder of Orange Shirt Day joins us and, and Phyllis was talking, you know, you might like the average uh, non-Indigenous person, uh, quite frankly, the average white person might might sit here and go barriers to banking. What do you what? Why is it? A, why would you not want to walk into a bank? What are you talking about? She yesterday, you know, talked about the first time she went in to set up her business. 
and I, I think she was talking about getting a business loan or something like that. And, and just some of the comments and the questions from the teller at the counter was just appalling. And that's one person's story. I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah. Can, can you take us into the idea of the status card? I mean, you're talking about identity and sovereign identity. And, and for people in particular, non-Indigenous people that might not understand the significance of that or why this is so important. Can you help us understand? Well, I, you know, I, I have to be careful here because the status card itself, I think, is a, is a is a legacy of the Indian Act, which, you know, um, regulates uh, and controls Indigenous people across this country. Right. Um, it, it was there to track and, and keep track of Indigenous folks and keep us under some control and keep us marginalized and isolated. Um, however, you know, in today's context, and we're sh- trying to shift the conversation a little bit here around that, that status card uh, really is the key to, to your right to access uh, all the treasures that are held by Canada in trust for you as an Indigenous person. So that box of treasures, right? So Canada has some legal uh, and, and, and uh, legislated responsibilities to Indigenous people and communities across this country as a result of you know, holding unceded territories and lands and resources and treasures. And so how do we use that status card as a way for you to unlock uh, those treasures for you to access those programs and services. Um, and so what we want to do, and, and in the context of sovereign identity as an Indigenous person, let's create a process where that status card um, never expires. And so currently that card expires and you've got to get a new one, just like a driver's license or a passport. But the process to renew that is just incredibly painful and antiquated. And you got to go get a passport photo, you got to fill out a whole bunch of paperwork, or you have to go to Indigenous, Canada, Indigenous Affairs Office and talk with an Indian agent and improve your Indigenous identity uh, before they'll issue a new card. Um, our processes through our KYC, as I indicated earlier, check all those boxes and so you can complete that renewal process in just a matter of, of moments, not less than, less than a few minutes. So renewing that status card and keeping it current uh, is really a way for you to unlock uh, some of those entitlements and benefits. So for example, you know, uh, tax exemption, uh, access to healthcare, all those kinds of things. So let's create, let's reshift that conversation. Let's talk about that card in a way that's intended to unlock the treasures uh, that Canada holds a trust for you. Uh, let's reinforce the concepts of sovereign identity as, as an Indigenous person and you never expire, you are always current. Uh, and let's use technologies to make that whole interface just a whole less problematic, reduce cost, re- reduce burden, re- reduce strain. I mean, you can do the whole thing on our app, take your own picture, we fill in all the blanks for you, give us a few details, digital signature, and off you go. You're done in a few minutes, right? So many uh, barriers to participation. I mean, you, you, you talked about voting and, and essentially democracy at a high level. Uh, you, you also, I think, for especially for indigenous people living on reserve, um, there are barriers to participation in healthcare, care, uh, barriers to participation in the economy. And a lot of this has to do with, I think, the, the <laughs> I'm not saying anything profound here, uh, the lack of rural broadband, the, the lack of reliable high speed Internet across this country in many rural areas, which would disproportionately affect indigenous people living on reserve. Is that a barrier to entry even with one feather? It certainly can be, um, you know, uh, and it's a good point. And I think this is part of the inequity across the country when it, when it comes to indigenous communities and the rest of the, the rest of the country, that that access to digital 
digital uh, technology and solutions bandwidth, you know, getting on the internet is certainly a thing. And we're aware of that. And so what we've done is just create a really clean interface. So whether you're, you know, basically, if you were even on a dial-up system, our interface would be really clean and smooth uh, and, and, and allow you to, to use that technology without too much uh, problem uh, or, access, uh, or accessibility issues. We also make sure that we're PIPA compliant and, and SOC 2 compliance, and so that we're providing all those kind of accessibility components to that interface. Um, and I think just, again, just keeping it really clean and neat so that if your bandwidth is light or not very strong, you can still use our systems. And we've also got, obviously, security and other um, uh, proficiencies in our system where if there is some interruption, you can get back on and just pick up where you left off. So we are aware of that and we design around that. Uh, but it's still one of those things that's a huge inequity in this country. And and and, and we certainly run into it from time to time, for sure. You must see with, with these opportunities for technology, and, and custom fit technology. I mean, some of these projects that you're describing to us and, and the ones that you're working on, uh, perhaps uh, a, a change in what's the word I'm looking for in, in style of leadership or in in new perspectives. I think of, I think of, for example, uh, you know, Chief Billy Morin that's joined us here on the show and, and uh, you know, Enoch Cree Nation is like an unbelievable guy. And uh, just uh, he made he made a comment to me. I remember a while ago we were, we were talking about railway blockades and he goes, you know, maybe we'll just buy the railway. And he wasn't joking. You could tell he was not joking. And I was like, I love the way that this guy operates and the way that this guy thinks. Do you notice kind of a change in tone? Not to say that indigenous leadership and First Nations leaders uh, have not been ambitious in past or have have not sought to create these partnerships. But, you know, we, we featured, for example, a natural gas power plant that's being constructed outside of Edmonton right now, 51% indigenous owned a great news story. And there are more and more of these happening because I think there's there's more willingness and and, and more hunger and appetite from industry to participate and certainly uh, from indigenous communities as well. In the context of technology and what you're doing, are you seeing that? Yeah, man, it's a revolution, right? It's awesome. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, um, you know, reconciliation, right? It's yeah. like, you got to take the action. So as an indigenous folks, you've got to own it, right? And if you have the, and, but, but, you know, let me just caution that or let me, you know, caution that statement a little bit, you know, as an indigenous leader in this, for your community, you are, you are just, you are always in crisis management mode in terms of your community yourself. And so, you know, sometimes thinking beyond just dealing with the immediate needs of your members to keep them, you know, keep them in housing, keep them sheltered, keep the food on the table, keep the power on and provide good governance. Uh, sometimes you just don't have the resources or bandwidth to, to think of side of that but there are folks out there that are that are taking a lead and really owning this kind of revolution from an indigenous perspective and again it's you know if indigenous folks um take the lead and have the ability to 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 own this process you know reconciliation uh and the truth about our relationship with canada i think will be will be will become will be more forefront and we'll have a more honest conversation about that but it'll also allow us to participate in a way that we deem as individuals as indi indigenous communities and nations appropriate uh, for our communities, right? And, and we don't pass judgment on other First Nations in terms of what they do or why they do it. We're here just to lift you up and, and help you do what you need to do. Um, and uh, and I think from a technology perspective, what technology allows you to do, uh, digital solutions um, and from our perspective and the way we design them is to drive down costs 
uh, for administration and governance, right? Let's remove the administrative strain. And from a cultural perspective, where I come from here on the West Coast, part of the Quack Quack Quack, is when you, when you go to the big house uh, or, or you are, you know, in that cultural social perspective, you leave more on the table uh, uh, when you leave than, when, than what was there when you arrived. And so let's have a, you know, let's build technologies that, 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 that do that. Let's leave more on the table. Let's leave the gifts. Let's, let's, let's recognize that the real wealth, um, uh, uh, the definition of wealth from Indigenous perspective is measured by what you give back, not by what you keep. And that is a fundamental you know, shift uh, a, a difference in the way that um, traditional, you know, capitalism would view and, and te- industry and technology would view the world, uh, and even investors. Uh, and from our perspective, as indigenous company, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna give more back than we keep. We're gonna leave more on the table than than when we than when we arrived. Uh, and whatever we do, it needs to lift our people up, uh, and uh, and do the heavy lifting to do the work. Um, I think to advance truth and reconciliation, but also you know that indigenous story and narrative across this country. Hmm. I uh, I think you might like hearing this. Hope is watching this morning on our live chat. She says this guy's smart, sure, uh, but even better, motivated by the right principles. <laughs> what a lovely okay. human being. Tracy says I think it's access to hardware, software, technical know-how. Governments assume that everybody owns a smartphone and all the equipment, the tech they need, and that's simply not the case. Mike, uh, I like this. Mike says you know it's sure it's a dream. But I often wonder what our world might be like if settlers embraced the culture they saw when they arrived. That's uh, an important comment there. Lawrence, wow. be- before we thank you for your time, uh, sometimes this, these are the best answers we get. If, if, if I ask you if there's anything that I've missed or not asked you about or something you'd like to leave us with to think about today on this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I, I, if I could just say, I'm, I'm totally humbled uh, by the opportunity to be here today and, and, and those few comments. And I think, um, you know, this is, this is a day where we all need to be humbled by, by, um, by what we know and understand to be Canada's historical relationship with Indigenous folks in this country. And I think just take a moment to reflect on that uh, and to keep that um, awareness alive and not forget. Um, this is the real crime, right, that these things get forgotten. And I, we can't forget. Uh, we can be stronger because of them. We can be better because of them. Um, and if we forget, we risk losing the opportunity to 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 be better, to be greater, to be more than the sum of that that experience. And and I have hope. I believe that um, uh, that you know we got here today because of a whole bunch of heavy lifting and hard work of some amazing folks, elders, ancestors. All these folks kind of lifted this thing up to this point, and and we can build on that. Um, uh, and I think we can really get to a point of reconciliation and truth with the indigenous people in this country. That's my hope. That's my passion. That's what we try to do every single day. Well, I share your your hope and I share your optimism and I share your commitment, uh, Lawrence, both of us coming from different backgrounds. Here we are meeting on the show, and I'm grateful for your time and your perspective today. Uh, as mentioned, people can check out what you're doing at onefeather.ca. Lawrence Lewis is the founder and CEO of One Feather, and we're grateful to have had you join us. Thanks for this. Thank you very much. Hala Kessler. If you've uh, been enjoying uh, or learning from this broadcast, we encourage you to, to smash that like button. We encourage you to share our content, to tell people about Real Talk and what we're doing here today. You can use the hashtag Real Talk RJ. And of course, you can send us your thoughts by way of email anytime uh, to talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's where we'll get a lot of uh, submissions. It's where we get the majority of our submissions 
for Trash Talk. Uh, another episode of that, a lively one, I guarantee it, coming up tomorrow on the show. Uh, Trash Talk is presented by the team at Local Waste. And you can learn more about what they're doing. Contact them, connect with them for a bin in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, on their website, localwaste.ca. They've been family-owned and operating proudly, keeping it local for more than 25 years. And Chris and Lauren and Mikkel, the CEO over there, encourage you to give them a call anytime to 780-306-1282. Not just if you're looking for a bin, that could be a smaller bin, you know, for maybe a yard project you have going on, or, or maybe a big, huge one permanently you need outside your retail location. They're driven by integrity, and they work with their customers to build up those relationships, but also... They're always looking to expand their brand. And if you're an entrepreneur in a community that you think is underserved when it comes to waste and recycling management services, the team would love to hear from you at Local Waste. You can find them online at localwaste.ca. The following paid advertisement does not necessarily represent the views of Ryan Jesperson, Real Talk, or Relay Communications Group Incorporated. It's time for a fresh perspective. Edmonton deserves a leader who will work for you and with you. Someone who understands the strengths of our community to do things better and faster. Cheryl Watson has built her career on results, not promises. On October 18th, vote Watson for mayor and together let's build a city that works. This ad is paid for by the Watson for mayor campaign. Want to encourage you if you live in one of the 16 Alberta communities that has a Friesen Brothers to, to check them out. This week right now, they're proudly featuring Leffers Brothers Organic Alberta-Grown Carrots. These delicious Alberta-Grown Carrots from the Leffers Brothers Farm in Coaldale, Alberta are now in stores. Is there anything better? Anything better than a root vegetable medley, Sam Brooks, I can see your mouth watering right now, a, a root vegetable medley, carrots to me, tossed in olive oil, some cracked pepper, some sea salt in foil, either nestled into a, a, the embers of a fire or perhaps on the barbecue or even baked in the oven. Am I torturing either of you right now? Like a lot. You a big carrot guy? Big carrot guy. Carrots Carrots are the best this time of year because they get sweeter when they get a little bit cold outside. And then when you harvest them now, they're just like, they're so nice. It's just like, oh, it's perfect carrot season. I'm not even going to fact check that because it, I just know it's true if it's coming from you. Are you a big carrot person, Hoyles? I love the romancing of the food I'm, over I'm there. Like, I, and, and can I just say, I did not tell Sam Brooks he would be put on the spot to give us a science lesson on carrots. He just can do it. He can just do it. Are you a big carrot person? I love them cooked with some butter and salt on them. Oh my gosh. Right? Mm-hmm. What about raw carrots? Y- yes. Yeah. I don't like the big ones that you have to like really... No, like, no, no. You, you, Bugs yeah. Bunny on? Like no, I don't yeah. want to do that. No, I agree. I need to be able to snap... You need the Leffers Brothers Organic Alberta-Grown Carrots Precisely. at Friesen Brothers. Just what I need. Alberta-grown, Alberta-owned for more than 65 years. And also a huge shout out to our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep. I wanted to draw your attention today to their websites. You can link to them from our website under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Yeah, they've got new trucks and new Jeeps and as, as many as they possibly can right now. Inventories are low across the country. Uh, they've got better selection because they can share their inventories and they have buying power. 
They're, they're kind of the big dogs. You know what I mean? Sherwood St. Albert Dodge Jeep, but their pre-owned selection is what I wanted to draw your attention to today. Where They've got 25 pre-owned Rams in stock at Sherwood Dodge alone. Uh, they've also got pre-owned vehicles, you know, Dodge cars. Of course, you're talking if you're a Mopar fan. The Jeeps, Audis, Chevys, Fords, GMs, Hondas, Hyundais. I haven't even said these names before on the show because we've been so brand loyal, but that's the thing with their pre-owned selection. They've got a ton of them. they got a Benz in stock, some Mitsu, some Nissan, some Volkswagens, some Toyotas, and more. You can browse their selection online or you can visit them in person. Everybody's masked up, keeping safe distances, sanitizer at the door. I know because I was in St. Albert Dodge just the other day. You tell them that Real Talk sent you when you pop in and say hi. Well, you know, we thought today that that maybe we would observe a stat. You know, maybe we'd take the day to ourselves to think and reflect. And we will as the day goes on. But it was important to me and it was important to us as a team that we put this show together as, as a venue and as an opportunity for us to have some enlightening and important conversations about reconciliation and reconciliation. I wanted to put you on the spot, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, by thanking you for what you've done today. Uh, this show has been your work, and you've done an amazing job. The guests have been uh, across the board uh, fascinating, enlightening. Uh, Dr. James McCocus uh, getting choked up out of the gates today is uh, something that I don't think any of us will soon forget. May I ask you a personal question on, on where your head's at today? We've asked every single guest that's joined us what the day means to them. And we're asking our audience members how they're observing it. I mean, aside from this enormous contribution that you've made to, to drive dialogue here, I mean, thousands of people will be hearing these interviews. How about you personally? I, I don't know, Ryan. Uh, I just really want to listen. Yeah. Today. I don't I don't think that I need to amplify my voice today. I appreciate that. Sam, how about you? Where's your head at? How are you approaching the day today? We all put on our orange shirts. We've done our part there. But of course, it's so much more than that. Yeah, the orange shirt is, is kind of just it's it's like a piece of clothing. It doesn't actually really mean anything unless it has some meaning behind it. Um, I came in today's show thinking that we'd, we'd have a lot of difficult conversations and it would be really, really reflective. And I'm really inspired um, all three of our guests just kind of hammered it home to me that to make reconciliation work, we need to work with indigenous peoples and we need to listen to them and we need to share their stories and we need to get out of the way. Um, I'm thinking about the, uh, the truth and reconciliation calls to action for a while. And I think that one of the things that we get caught up in is, is checking boxes and keeping stock and, and treating this document like a checklist. Like, you know, we, we do all these things and then that's it. We've achieved reconciliation. And yeah. it's not. It's a journey. It's, uh, it's going to be several years of sharing stories and, and learning and, and getting things wrong a lot. Yeah. And, and understanding that and, and keeping the dialogue open and keeping moving forward. So that's, that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Today. I appreciate that, Sam. Um, I appreciate everybody that chimed in on Twitter as well. And on our live chat asking you how, what are you doing to infuse meaning? That's how I chose to word it. We could have said it several ways, but how are you infusing meaning in today? Um, politicos uh, in Western Canada will know the name Peter Polarski. Peter says, you know, since it's new, uh, this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation says it's new and many of us don't know exactly what to do. Says, Peter, I'm going to spend some time reading social media posts from indigenous community and business leaders that are taking the lead. Peter says, my goal today is to read and learn what I can. I like this from Mrs. White, uh, who chimed in, says uh, today 
I'm going to reflect and act, and I'm going to donate one day's pay. I'm going to give one day's pay. And uh, this is an interesting initiative on Twitter. You can check out the account at give one day's pay at give one day's pay reflect then act. Encourage you to give one day's pay to support indigenous projects, movements, organizations and nations. And you can check out more at one day's Appreciate so many of you pointing us in different uh, interesting and informative directions through the course of the day today. This is an engaged audience to say the very least. And we're always so grateful for that. If I can take us uh, to, to, to just a bit of a lighter uh, arena for a moment, uh, our live chat is also delivering on carrot recipes. And James <laughs> checked in to let us know he prefers his carrots raw. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. As a matter of fact, I'm quite happy uh, oftentimes in the same day to transition between cooked and raw carrots. Uh, Jen is suggesting warm cooked carrots with melted butter and brown sugar. For more of the sweet, not the savory, but the sweet. The sweet, the savory. The, that's again when we're talking about fall. We're talking about autumn. Autumn is such a beautiful <laughs> word. Arf is reminding us of shredded carrots in a sub. Obviously, like a Vietnamese sub. Oh, yeah. Shredded carrots. Are you kidding me? Uh, Sharon's saying roasted all the way. Scott says, you know, there, there's nothing better than picking fresh veggies from the garden and then eating them for dinner. I agree. I love the, the people you'll come over. You you know, be able to remember we used to be able to go over to people's houses for dinner. How great that was. I can remember that, guys. No, um, and I you, you'd be it's like so you'd be like halfway through a garden salad and then they'd be like, I picked it all today out of my garden. And there's nothing like the smile that comes with that. You did it. Uh, Mike says uh, one of my favorites as a kid steamed carrots with a drizzle of honey and a sprinkle of mint, oh, honey and mint. mint. On steamed carrots and Mike, of course, steaming them. You're, you're keeping a lot of the, the nutrients still in there, right? Ooh, that sounds I good. act like I know what I'm talking about. I have no idea. Tracy says baby carrots all summer growing up on the deck. You know, we loved them baked and roasted and, and raw. Uh, we considered ourselves so lucky to have fresh vegetables. James grew up in a household. He says that followed old school British cooking. Oh, James, I'm sorry. Um, he says no offense to our, our British friends. I lived there for a year. It's, it's, there's room for improvement. Um, <laughs> I don't know bangers and mash I was gonna bangers and mash I would say that the baked tomatoes in the breakfast was something to get mm. baked tomatoes and beans baked beans it was kind of a nice treat and of course you can't beat British fish and chips wrapped in a newspaper like old school mm -hmm. uh, yes. you know okay so we'll, we'll give them that but uh, James says that the veggies were cooked to mush and so I grew up hating all vegetables until I was a teenager and then I learned it doesn't have to be that way there you go uh, Kim says that raw carrots dipped in peanut butter can be delightful. Les says carrots are a natural dewormer for dogs. I I, I don't know. We'll have to check with uh, Grand Dog Essentials. We'll have to check with the team at Grand Dog Essentials. They're they're slated in for tomorrow's show, so this one's for free. <laughs> the promo code Real Talk will get you ten percent off your first time order. That one's for free because we love you guys. And Fatima says, uh, Fatima and I are seeing eye to eye on this one. I, I was going to wait. I was going to drop this bomb right at the end. She says, I, I, like my, I only like my carrots in cake. To me, a good carrot cake with raisins. I was about to ask. You knew it. You knew it was coming. A good carrot cake with raisins and a disproportionate amount of icing. You've got that sort of like, it's not like a, what is it? Like not a, it's not a buttercream. It's like a, what, how do you cream describe cheese. it? Cream it's cream cheese. cheese. Thanks, yeah. guys. Thanks. Oh, my gosh. I got you. I know you guys got me. I know you do. 
people are now piling on British cuisine. I better get out here before I start a fight. That was not my intention. Let me remind you that at Westworld.ca, Westworld Computers right now, you have an opportunity not only to, of course, check out the brand new iPhone 13 and the iPhone 13 Pro, which I've got my eye on, if I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like it's not... I've never been the guy that has to have like the latest tech, but the way that everybody's talking about this iPhone 13 Pro and what it does in particular, the camera... I know we're showing you the iMac right now because they got a great selection of those too, but I'm starting to think it might be time for an upgrade. If it is, or if you're just looking, maybe not on the sales side, but the service side as well, to book in and deal with a team that puts customer service first, so much so that in the face of that big white box store, you know the one I'm talking about that has the big Apple, you know that one? These guys have been going toe-to-toe with them for 40 years, family-owned and still earning the return business of customers and clients each and every year. Daryl and his team are ready to take your call. You can give them a shout for a special order right now, 780-454-5190. Find them at westworld.ca or, of course, visit them at their brick-and-mortar shop in our home city of Edmonton. Family-owned and operating for four decades at Westworld Computers. And a huge shout-out today. If all this talk about carrots has you thinking about something maybe a little bit more along the lines of a treat... You know what I mean? I mean, all this healthy stuff has its place, but I don't know if a pecan pie blizzard or maybe a pumpkin pie blizzard kind of floats your boat. If you're going to be out and about today, why not go say hi to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park? You'll find them at the Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road locations. Uh, The ownership group of Mark, Michelle, and Michael, absolute gems. You let them know that you're there because you're a real talker. We're a proud partner of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Coming up on tomorrow's show, as mentioned, we've got trash talk locked and loaded, but there's still room for a few more emails. We'd love to hear from you. Get something off your chest. You know, if anything's bothering you these days, talk at ryanjesperson.com. Dr. Scott Romanyuk, are we headed for a cold war with China? Plus, a tough talk, an important one, our Real Talk Roundtable on pregnancy and infant loss. Make it a meaningful day today, friends. I know you will. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. 